Warning. The Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to Not Real Art, the podcast where we talk to the world's most creative people. I'm your host, faithful, trusty, loyal, tireless, relentless host, Sourdough, coming at you from Crew West Studio in Los Angeles. Man, do we have a great show for you today. We have a real VIP in the house, the one and only Wordsmith. Perhaps you know him. His street art has been all over the country and even the world. You've probably seen him anywhere from L.A. to San Francisco to New York to Melbourne to New Zealand to Paris to Berlin, London. He's all over. And so we're going to talk to Wordsmith today. But before we get into that, uh, I want to thank you for tuning in. As always, we do this for you. So we are grateful that you're taking time to listen to this, oh, I don't know, 200 and something, something, something episode of the Not Real Art Podcast. And we appreciate your loyalty. So thanks so much for tuning in. Of course, as always, I want to encourage you to go to notrealart.com, our website, and check out all the good, healthy stuff we got for you. We got everything from incredible new artists and art that you can discover with our interviews and our articles. We've got the Not Real Art School with free educational videos that you can watch to learn about upping your arts business and and uh, what about licensing what about marketing so be sure to check that out it's all free also we have some incredible online exhibitions that are happening now every month so be sure to check those out and last but not least please be sure to check out the remote series that we're doing with uh, art uh, curator consultant critic the one and only Badir McCleary doing some incredible video stories about public art in this country and around the world so check that out but today Today, we have the one and only Wordsmith. Wordsmith is a published author, screenwriter, former advertising copywriter, and emerging street artist, although he's kind of emerged. Born and raised in the Midwest, like me, we hit it off, Midwesterners, yeah. Anyway, he relocated to LA again, like me, started doing time in Hollywood, chasing his dream to sell a big script, but eventually, I think, found uh, his passion in street art and has become quite prolific. His words as a writer uh, are resonating with countless people around this country and around the world as they see his art posted up all over the place over the years. L.A., New York, Philly, Chicago, San Diego, San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, New Orleans, Houston, San Antonio, Memphis, Miami, West Palm Beach, Toronto, London, Paris, Berlin, Krakow, Hindenburg, <laughs> Melbourne, Tokyo, Auckland, New Zealand, Edinburgh. I think that's what I man. I went, I gotta I gotta work on my uh, my English here. I'm so grateful to have Wordsmith here. He's a busy guy, much in demand, and took time out of his busy schedule to come and chop it up with little old me. So without further ado, let's get into this episode the one and only wordsmith in the house people here we go wordsmith welcome to not real art hey it's great to be here thanks for having me thanks for the invite man i tell you what it's like you know it's not every day i get to have a legend on the show so special day for me talking about my dog <laughs> and there's that midwest uh, humility which is par- also part of the reason why people love you you know <laughs> awesome thank you yeah yeah man well i tell you what it's it's so great i mean we met uh, briefly a few years ago at designer con through our good good pal mr levy shout out mr levy hope you're well but that was it was great to make your acquaintance that day and then you know, last uh, Saturday night, you and I bumped shoulders at the No Comply show. Great show. Curated and produced by Sugar Press Art. Shout out Ann and Sugar Press Art. 
but it was so great to see you again, man. And then, you know, serendipity and here you are. And it was like, you know, hey, come on the show. Let's let's chop it up. Yeah, it was great. I'm sure we'll get into it a little bit, but we furthered the conversation. Like we have cities in common and paths. Uh, so it was kind of great to to get to know you more. Yeah, Midwest. <laughs> it was, you know, that's one of those, you know, it's funny because you know, you meet people along the way and you connect with people and you're like, why do I like that? It's like, it's a chemistry thing. And then a lot of times I've found out over the years, it's like, oh, wait, you're from the Midwest. Oh, okay. Like yeah. that's, and I'm an Indiana boy myself. You're a Ohio guy, right? Yeah. Born in Ohio. I always say grew up in Chicago and then... Yep quit my job in Chicago and moved west to write scripts and short films. And I wrote a novel and now I'm writing on walls. Uh, (laughs) It's been an incredible journey. And you just touched on something. I'm sorry, I'm going to go off on a tangent because I was just talking about this. Like I showed up in Los Angeles and when I got here, people kind of said, oh, it's who you know, like it was a bad thing. And there is that thing of nepotism or just in Hollywood. But I quickly kind of realized it is who you know in the sense you plop down here. Maybe you're from here, but you just both you, you just meet people that you like hanging out with, like working with, like being with. And hopefully you rise together. You know what I mean? And that's what I've done in two lifetimes. I did it as a writer here in Hollywood, met a great group of people, actors, directors, writers. And it was just fun to be friends with them. And then, yes, you know, as you have success, hopefully you rise together and you're like, oh, I want to work with that guy. Now that I have the opportunity to produce this show or direct this show, it's like, I'm going to bring this person, this person, this person along. And then in the art world, it was the same thing. It was just, or similar thing. It's just, I had a whole new family of friends, you know, created just by, just by that community, which I thought would have been so secretive and competitive. And it was the opposite. It was people saying, oh, come to my studio. I'll show you, you know, how I do things. And and now I do that on a, on an ongoing basis. Like anybody that wants to learn or be, or is inspired by me, I'm like, come down. You know what I mean? Let's see what you got in your head and let's see what we can get down on a canvas or paper or reclaimed materials. But sorry, tangent. But I love that mentality of just meeting people and they're your friends, but they're your colleagues and it is who you know. Yes. And the reality is, right. I mean, that's, that's true no matter what city you're in, right. I mean, having a having a network, having a community, having a tribe, some people call it a tribe, finding your people, right? Whether it's a sharing a profession or a vocation or sharing a, a love of sports or whatever the case is, it is who you know. And that's not always a bad thing. In fact, that's usually a good thing. And, you know, you can debate the relative merits of nepotism. I mean, it is how the world was built. <laughs> it's like culture each strategy for breakfast. You know, it is how the world works sometimes. But Yeah, man. You know, it's like when I came to, and that was the thing, right? Like you and I were talking the other night and it was funny because not only do we have like the Ohio, Indiana thing, but we actually were living in the city of Chicago in the, during the same time for years. And of course, somehow never met and didn't know each other, but now here we are connected in LA. It's, it's a beautiful thing. And that's another thing I'm fascinated by. Like, there needs to be an app for that when you meet someone and you hear these couples that it happens. You know what I mean? Like, oh, we were at the same concert at the same time or the same baseball game. And it's just amazing. And I'm sure that happened. We were in the same bars and baseball games and sporting events and whatever parties. But it's amazing how your paths probably cross a couple times, especially when you're sharing cities. But then, yeah, you finally, you know, meet and connect. And here we are. Well, and then we could bore our listeners with that whole like, okay, what bars did you get drunk at? (laughs) That's why I said there should be an app. And I think it's for another generation. But I think with the geotagging of photos, it's going to be like, you put your shit in, I put my shit in, and we'll find out, holy shit, we were both at Disneyland, you know what I mean, on the same day kind of thing. Yeah, I, you know, we, we call these smartphones. And, you know, in some ways, they're smart. In some ways, they're dumb. I always felt like they were really smart. If I was in a bar, this phone could recognize that that phone down the bar, based on the metadata and all the shit on that phone, it's like, no, no, you guys need to talk because you're somehow both connected to the Cleveland Indians or you're both connected, you know, et cetera, et cetera. That is cool. And then I'm going to, like, there's probably people listening to this podcast now, which will be in the future, but they're like, what are these idiots? That app already exists. It's called Time Bucky. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Oh, like, I know. I know. Why I know. This app I, existed for two years. 
I know, I know, I know. I got to get out more. I fully admit it. <laughs> it is something. And listen, I mean, when I, you know, Chicago is a very, well, it's a pedestrian city, right? It's a city of neighborhoods. It's a city of bars. It has a drinking culture and it's a very social friendly city. And then, you know, moving to LA, I don't know what your experience was like, but you know, it took me a minute to find my tribe here, to people that weren't my girlfriend's friends, right? Who am I really going to hang with? And as creative people, you know, you eventually find your fellow creatives that you connect with. But the problem with LA is the geography, right? We're so spread out and you don't have that density of population and we're not a pedestrian city. We're all kind of in our cocoons and our bubbles driving around in our cars and it's hard to connect. It took me a minute to find my tribe. How about you? I got lucky. So when I moved here, I inherited a good group of friends because my oldest friend, who I've I've known since the seventh grade, was already here for like two years. So I got lucky in that respect. And I remember immediately going to these awesome dinners and events and stuff like that with this incredible group of people that welcomed me, you know, with open arms, you know, as a creative. But everybody was doing their own thing. There were actors, there were directors, editors, and, and it was just awesome to kind of be around that energy. And then it happened again, you know, with the art world. I kind of went out of my way to always, you know, meet people at events. And then a light bulb went off in my head after a couple of years. I'm like, these are people I love talking to at these events, like the skating, the skate deck event we were just at. And I'm like, why are we only waiting for those events? So I started, I was the person that started having cookouts and just inviting people over and then even merging worlds. Like I would have artist friends and then I would invite my actor friends and Hollywood friends and just kind of like merging those worlds. And that's always great to see. That's the secret to life or the, the mixture that I love. And finally, I was in London for two years and I just moved back in December. So now I'm in a whole new area, like I'm in Echo Park where I used to live in Hollywood. And now there's another group of friends. They kind of live and, you know, kind of hover around the arts district that it's just been great to kind of hang with them and meet them. And they've kind of now I have all these many little groups is what I'm getting at. So I've been very lucky, but it does take time. And and as from the Midwest, it's kind of funny, like I can. This is why Los Angeles never really bothered me because, you know, when you are moving here, you realize, you know, there's fake people and and just crazy people and annoying people. But my Midwest mentality just kind of sniffed bullshit inside of 60 seconds. So I knew the people that had depth, you know what I mean? And and, and those are the people that I wanted to hang with. And, and we really didn't have any loose ends, especially with the group that I inherited. But it is amazing. And then you kind of do the math and you're like, holy shit, 75% of my friends are like rooted in the Midwest or or that kind of, you know, upbringing and stuff. And again, nothing. Some of my closest friends were born and raised here, East Coast, overseas, everything. But but you do you do realize you gravitate toward these Midwesterners a lot. And there are a lot of transplants here, obviously. That's the thing, right? Because Hollywood casts such a long shadow that the mythology or the, the reputation is that, oh, you come to L.A., you, you never meet anybody from L.A. The truth is... That's such bullshit because, of course, when I moved here, you go to the bank, you open up your bank account, you go to the DMV, you get your license. I mean, you go to the dry clean, whatever it is. All those people are from L.A. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, oh, no, no, it's the Hollywood people that moved here exactly. that want to be famous and whatever. Of course, L.A. is a city of angels, the city and, and a huge, diverse uh, Angelinos. And then and then in such so much diversity. I mean, it is one of the most exciting eclectic, like any city, like New York, London, whatever, incredibly diverse. Uh, It's just spread out and it's hard to, it's hard to find your tribe sometimes, but at least it was for me. But one of the stories, I'll just say this real quick. You know, I just, I was here like a a couple of weeks, maybe not even a week, week, 10 days. And uh, I was at a dinner, my girlfriend at the time, my wife now, she works in in the business as, as we say here, she was working in Warner Brothers at the time. So we go to this dinner with a couple of her friends and then a few people, most people I didn't know. And so I'm talking to the guys sitting next to me and they said, oh, you're new to town. And uh, I said, yeah. And they said, well, where are you from? And I said, well, I'm from Chicago. And he goes, oh, the flyover city. And I looked at just like that. I said, excuse me? No, and I had never heard of it either. And I said to him, flyover city, what do you mean? I've never heard of that. He goes, well, you know, you fly over Chicago to get from LA to New York and back. Wow. And I said, without stopping and without hesitation, I go, you know what? Keep flying over. (laughs) 
Yeah. Keep flying over, asshole. We're very proud people. <laughs> never heard of that. And and that's obviously somebody that's never been to Chicago, which is such an amazing city. But it's funny. I usually hear that kind of stuff about Cleveland. And I actually, I say exactly that to people. I'm like, have you ever been to Cleveland? And they're like, fuck no, why would I go there? I go, go there and you're not going to make fun of Cleveland anymore. Yes, it's a small town, but it's an awesome town. It's amazing. It's, But it yeah. gets like a bad rap just on reputation and yeah, the river burned decades ago and all that jazz. Well, by the way, but the bigger, but the bigger point you're making is Ohio is a very impressive state. I mean, you know, taking politics out of it, the history of Ohio is amazing. I, and I and I only know that I know that not necessarily because, you know, I learned it by reading books because, you know, that's not how I learned it because I'm an Indiana guy. What happened was I got a job out of high school. No, I was in high school, actually. And I was it was a jewelry manufacturer. They made and repaired jewelry for all the jewelry stores around the tri-state area or whatever, right? Okay. And so I started working, you know, and I was, what was I doing? I was doing, I was like buffing, you know, they'd repair the rings, you know, resize ring, I'd buff out the weld and, you know, all that stuff, right? Anyway, and I'd do deliveries and whatever. But anyway, with the first day, first week, I inadvertently walked into this, what I didn't realize was this kind of onboarding hazing there were three owners. Two of them were from Ohio. And within the first couple of days of working, then I said, so Scott, you're, uh, you're from, from Indiana, right? And you're from the, I'm like, yeah, yeah. You know, oh yeah, yeah. Well, we're from Ohio. Oh, great. Yeah, that's great. I'm like 16 or so, right? Yeah, yeah. We're from Ohio, yeah. Tell me, Scott, how many U.S. presidents did Indiana produce? <laughs> how many astronauts does Indiana have? And they just start going down and they start unpacking this amazing history of Ohio and all the incredible Americans that have come from Ohio. Yeah. All I know is those are competitive people. And I like that. Like <laughs> the competition and everything, including, do you know how many, you know, politicians <laughs> here and there. But yeah, I'm competitive and it's kind of crazy. People are surprised by that, which is, is makes me laugh. But man, you get me in any kind of trivia thing or board game or anything like that. I'm, I'm out of control. I'm not a gambler though. It's kind of weird. So, you know, as a writer, I want to unpack your journey a little bit. You know, it's funny when you talk to parents about their kids, you know, they'll say, little Johnny, you know, his first words were mommy or his first words were daddy or whatever. And then kids talk about their first memory, you know, oh, my first memory is X or my first memory is Y. What was the first thing you wrote? First thing I wrote was probably either trying to write my own comic book because I was a comic book kid or a short story because... In high school, I had an awesome writing teacher, which was amazing. And I remember him pushing to write in that form. But I think it was the comic book. I think that was even before. And that's what's crazy. Like, yes, I came up with the characters. So there was art in that and, and creating the costumes and this and that. But to me, what I realize now is it was more about the writing of those stories that fascinated me. Like, I loved looking at comic book art when I was reading comics, but I always kind of like, how did they think of that? And, oh, I love that, you know, how the battle happened and how, you know, the good guy won or this or that. So I just always dissected that and movies. Like, I was a big movie kid and still am a big movie person. But I think, to answer your question, it was probably creating my own comic book, unless I'm forgetting something. Something. And that's funny because then I went away from the art aspect and just wanted to write for the longest time. And I still do, but the street art brought the art aspect back to it and I came full circle. And in between, I worked in advertising. So I don't know if we're going to talk about this more, but if you add that all up, it's like, yeah, I was being created from when I was a comic book kid. When you look at what who I am now and what I'm doing now, it just it just all made sense. All these little stops and starts and, you know, different lives that I had. That's another tangent. But I do want to talk about it because I've said this before. It's just like in that group of friends that you kind of talked about. I realized a couple years ago what the common bond is. Like you can sit there and say, oh, it was Hollywood. We all wanted to make movies or TV or in the art world. You can say, oh, it's street art. We all get paint on our hands. But it's not. The, the bond of the people that are closest to me in life are we have reinvented ourselves countless times. 
and I'm the poster child of that. I always say that, but but I love these people that just have past lives and and decided to quit jobs and move across the country and just take chances. And I always say dive into pools of unknown. I think that's so healthy. It's scary, but it's healthy, especially when I make the joke, we only live twice. You know what I mean? And especially when we only live twice, you got to take those chances. You know what I mean? You just got to chase your dreams. That is so true. And it resonates with me because, you know, I feel incredibly similar. I feel the same and, and I have done that, you know, just when I had every reason to stay in Chicago, my life was great in Chicago, had all kinds of reasons to stay. I'm like, well, based on my calculus, I have all these reasons to stay, which equals all the reasons to go. It's like, no, 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 let's, let's just pull the, you know, let's fuck this, you know, like, let's just jump and do something completely different and see how we grow. Let's have an adventure. I never wanted to play it safe. I never wanted to plateau and be secure. You know, it's like, I'm just like, let's go have some fun. Yeah. Yeah. I've said this before and, and I don't love to repeat myself. However, there's there's a whole new audience here with your podcast, you know, hopefully. But taking those chances is so healthy. Like I always say, when you're older, sitting on your porch, having lemonade or beer or whatever your your choice of, of beverages, you're never gonna think, Oh, I shouldn't have chased my dreams when I was younger. It's obviously going to be the opposite, if anything, and you're going to be, I should have chased them longer. I should have chased them harder. I should have chased them, period. And I try to instill that knowledge, whatever that means, into people. And and I say that because people ask me for advice a lot. Maybe I have that kind of face, but, but they ask me for advice and I will evaluate the person. And half a lot of the time I tell them, yeah, quit your job. Take that chance. You know what I mean? You're going to be happier even when you're struggling, even when you're, you know, facing that unknown. So I do give that advice, which isn't bad advice. It actually turns out to be good. I just had somebody back over to a group of friends over my place and one person said, oh, you know, I don't know if you remember, we had this conversation a couple months ago and I told him that. I go, oh, yeah, I think you're not in a good situation and you should quit your job. And he did. And he's just so much happier, you know, now chasing. It's scary, but scary is exciting. Well, you're alive. Yeah. Right? I mean, when you're when you're afraid, when you're scared, I mean, shit, you're you feel alive. Absolutely. That's a beautiful thing. But yes, it is scary and dangerous and you might get injured, if not physically, emotionally. <laughs> but somehow that that's what makes great stories, right? You know, the oh, drama. Character. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, so how old were you when you thought to yourself, I wanna be a writer? I'm going to be a writer. And by the way, was it writer first, artist second, or was it, I want to be an artist? Oh, no, wait, I want to, I want my medium is going to be the pen and paper. How did that go for you? No lie. I went from wanting to be an astronaut to a fireman, to a teacher. I think I had great teachers when I was young to a writer. Like once I started diving into movies and once I started diving into comic books, I was gone. I was a Star Wars kid. I was a comic book kid. So once I yeah. once I went down that rabbit hole, I was gone. I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to create these stories. Even with movies, even when we're talking about Star Wars, every kid was obsessed with it. However, I took it to the nth degree by sitting there looking for books on how did George Lucas create that world? How did he write it? How did he... Then special effects were a big part of that too. But for me, it was more like, how the hell did you think of this world and these characters? So that just started it for me. So I don't know, I was super young. This was even before high school, but it was that time when you're when everybody asked you, what do you want to be when you grow up? And for the longest time, I was like a writer. It was even weirder when I was saying a teacher, they're like, oh, good luck with that kid. But (laughs) I never looked back. The art really kind of came later and really with street art. There there were times that I was doing some artistic things, you know what I mean? Even in the advertising world, not so much creating, but when you have that collaboration of copywriter and art director, you're working with the art closely and helping form that. So I feel like it was always there. It was when I started getting pain on my hands in the street art world that it really kind of fully came together. And and that's another thing. Like I got frustrated with advertising because there were too many chefs in the kitchen. I love collaboration, but advertising just takes it to a ridiculous degree where awesome ideas just kept getting watered down. And just I wear my emotions on my sleeve. And on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, I was just getting beat up. I'm like, 
what happened to this great idea we came up with and pitched, and now the reality is this shitty, repetitive idea kind of thing. So long story short, when I started doing street art, I got a kick out of it because I started it just for me as a hobby, never expected to make a dime, but I was thrilled by it because I was the boss. I was the art director. I was the copywriter. I was everything. I deemed a piece. I worked on it. I polished it. I'm a perfectionist. But then at some point I said, this is ready for the streets. And I'm the one that took it out there and painted it. And then also, you know, took photos and posted it and, and everything that was right when Instagram was blowing up. But I loved that. Just obviously create obvious creative control of just being the person that said, this is, this is what I want to say. And then for all that, that pours out of me to be accepted so much and understood and embraced and resonating with people is staggering. I've said this before, everything I've ever written resonates with something in my life, but the fact that it's resonating with so many people and I get those messages of, oh my God, you're reading my mind. Oh my God, I needed to see this at this moment. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And then that led to the commissions. And that's when I was kind of like, oh shit, there, there's something here. I can maybe do this for a living. So it was, it was an incredible ride, but was your question, when did I start? <laughs> when, <laughs> uh, by the way, you're the best guest ever because I, I just wind you up and let you go, man. You're doing my you're doing my job for me. I love it. <laughs> well, even before the cameras were rolling, I said, like, I'm so passionate about this. This is what I do. And I mean, my work would be a lie if I didn't have this enthusiasm and love for even talking about what I do. It's just it's just all there. And I tend to ramble hopefully in an entertaining way where people aren't fast forwarding through the podcast like no I, I think people are hanging on for dear life is what they're doing that white knuckle grip anyway so you know it, one of the fun parallels about our lives is that you and I not only did we live in Chicago at the same time but I too was an agency guy I worked at primarily with a focus on brand strategy, brand identity design, packaging design. I didn't necessarily, I wasn't an ad agency guy. I was more of a design firm guy. But I feel your pain because the issuer, it's not the, you say chefs in the kitchen, but it's the fucking clients, man. Mm. You know what I mean? And then what, what I love about your story is like, no, 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 you became your own client. You're a vertically integrated situation now where you are both the client and the creative and you can yeah. deliver the purity yeah. Right. Of the message that you feel needs to be communicated. And it's resonating, man. And, yeah. you know, and, and you're touching lives and, you know, and that's such a beautiful thing. So we're being from the Midwest. Right. I don't know. I'm a working class kid from a blue collar family. You know, I was born in Gary, Indiana, same hospital as Michael Jackson. Grew up 40 miles outside Chicago in the 70s and stuff growing up. I mean, my art teacher told my parents my third grade art teacher told my parents, oh, Scott's got a lot of ability and talent. You know, you need to get him into some private lessons or whatever. And my parents, God bless them. You know, I know they meant well. They're like, oh, no, no, it's just a phase. That's not a real job. And in the Midwest, this idea of like pr the practical Protestant work ethic of like real jobs versus these flights of fancy that, you know, maybe rich people can have or whatever. What kind of support did you get from your family as you pursued, you know, your vision for becoming an artist and an art? Did you feel that pressure of like, oh, wait, I maybe should go to you know, get a real job versus go to Chicago and try to work in advertising, which probably didn't seem real to the blue collar folks in your community. Awesome question. I don't know if I've ever really talked about this and I'm going to throw my family underneath the bus, but it does have a, <laughs> a little bit of a happy ending. So yeah, I grew up in a very similar setting, mirror setting. I have an older brother and an older sister and they took the paths of the business world. So I was in their wake always being compared of when are you going to get a real job kind of mentality. And out of school, I studied, I studied writing and film and TV and advertising in college. And out of college, because of that persistent, when are you going to get a job? When are you going to get a job? When are you going to be like your you know, brother and sister? I kind of focused on advertising and got a job in it. And I was good at it. But like I said, I ultimately, a couple years in, I was being promoted, getting paid a lot of money. I just realized I wasn't happy. So when I quit my job, 
my parents and my family wanted to disown me. They were like, what are you doing? You're going to move to California? You're crazy. And I had to tell them that what I just said a little bit ago, even along the way, even when I was struggling, I was so much happier. I realized that immediately, you know, when you when you decide to quit a job and when you decide to move to a new city to chase your dreams, you can just feel you know, it's the opposite of buyer's remorse. You know what I mean? It just, it just, I knew I was making the right decision. So they kind of said, okay, good luck. You know what I mean? Kind of thing. But then when I got to LA, I had, LA was good to me. Like I had some minor successes early on that kind of like put them at bay. That sounds, that sounds ominous, but you know what I mean? Made them happy. They're like, okay, you know, maybe there's something here. And it all repeated itself when I told them that I started doing street art. They wanted to disown me. I remember my sister called me up and was like, what are you doing? You're going to wind up in jail. Just berated me. And long story short, now they brag about me. You know what I mean? And, and they're very proud of me. So I stuck to my guns and I always kind of had this like, not black sheep, but black sheep. I was the youngest. I got in the most trouble. That's also part of my story because my brother and sister, whatever, were older and I was the brat in a sense. I tried to get away with everything. I got in trouble all the time. I got grounded. But when I was grounded, what did I do? I was a voracious reader from everything from novels to comic books. And, and that instilled my imagination. When I was grounded, I just kind of like made up stories in my head. So I thank my parents now for being so strict in that sense. And we laugh about them two times in life saying, what are you doing? You should be doing this. And even in between, like I wrote a novel in before I started doing street art that ended up getting published. Again, they bragged about that. You know what I mean? So I just took a different route that they weren't used to. But that's part of my advice for people is you can't live your parents' lives. You have to live your own and you have to run down those paths that make you happy. So yeah, I definitely had a tough road and not a lack of support, but definitely they were very critical. And like I said, now they're happy. Now they get it. And in a sense, almost brag about me. And that makes me happy. You know, all you want to do is make your you know family proud. And I was trying to do that along the way, even though they made me feel like I was an embarrassment. And I'm like, that's not what you should do to a kid. But I, I have thick skin and I persevered and, and I never I never let that get me down, even though it was coming from inside the house, you know, kind of thing. The call is coming from inside the house. And that's <laughs> the most personal where it's like, if these people aren't on my side, holy shit, how am I going to go into a movie studio and sell my idea or how am I going to sell a piece of art, you know what I mean, in a gallery? But but you have to you have to be whatever, proud of what you do and believe in what you do and be your biggest champion. I mean, I'm stating the obvious, but but I see it in some people where they where they always put caveats on it, like, oh, I did this, but, and I'm like, forget the but, you fucking did this. This is awesome. It's like shout it from a rooftop kind of mentality. So, Yeah, well, you know, you're hitting on so much because, listen, I have so much more empathy for my parents now that I'm a parent. And I understand now all their, what I might have considered lack of support or whatever, actually, or maybe, maybe I've thought they were afraid or you're scared or you don't support me. You don't believe in me, but it was actually, they, it was coming from a place of love, right? Cause like, they're afraid, like the last thing a parent ever wants to imagine is that their kid is going to be down and out or going to be, you know, suffering in some way. And so it comes from love, but it, it really is complicated because, because it's also coming from their ego, right? Like my parents were like trying to raise a kind of a mirror image of them. Like they wanted me to be like them, believe a certain way, work a certain way, be a certain way. And, you know, somebody once asked me a while back, you know, well, what advice would you give for people in life? And I would say, well, if you want to be successful, lose your religion and disown your family. Uh, <laughs> and, and, right. And that's what I had to do. And I, you know, it sounds hyperbolic and uncertain and it kind of is hyperbolic, but it actually is true. I mean, I left my family in many cases, much to their chagrin, but I knew I had to go. I knew I had to leave to realize my dreams and vision. And by the way, coming from a very conservative, you know, Christian family in the Midwest and to each their own, we're all on our own spiritual journeys. 
but I knew that their belief system wasn't for me. So I had to, I had to lose my religion. And that was also very controversial, but it was, but I was breaking the shackles. It allowed me to fly. And I think that that's, you know, a big part of your story too, right? I mean, that you have to make these, take these risks, make these sacrifices uh, and it's scary sometimes, but essential. Yeah. You reminded me of something, even going back to, to your thing of what do you want to be when you grow up kind of thing. I, I literally had a guidance counselor in high school asked me that. And I was very, I was a dick, just whatever, being part funny and just being a troublemaker. But I said, how about happy? And and maybe I I, I, I realize this now, I think I might've ripped that off from John Lennon. I think he said that and I wasn't <laughs> right, a right, right. Eagles fan, but I go, how about right. happy? And they go, oh, oh, that's really great. But you have to pick from one of these, you know, things listed <laughs> on this form. Yeah. And I remember thinking, fuck that like happy is it should be your goal it's crazy it's crazy what we're and whatever i just went off on a on a tangent well but no no but i, I i'm sorry but I, I just love your story you and i we have so much in common it's hilarious because i also have a guidance counselor story which i'll share but maybe this is a midwest thing to do, do was like guidance counselors only in the midwest i i don't know but i don't know in my senior year maybe it was my junior year, i don't even know but I had that meeting with the guidance counselor where they want me. Oh, she wanted me to, she wanted to know what major I was going to yeah. declare. Like, what, what are you going to be when you grow up? It was the question. And what are you going to major in? And I said, and I literally said, I too was a dick. I said, wait a minute. I said, I'm 17 years old and you, and I'm probably going to live, the average male Caucasian lives to be about 75, 78. And you think that I'm going to know what I want to do for the next 50, 60 years of my life? Like, yeah. I don't know. And that's okay. And she's like, no, 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 you need to, you you know, I want you to pick a major. I want you to do this. I want to know what you want to be, you know, with your life and when you grow up. And I said, okay, it really seems like you need an answer. I said, here's an answer for you. When I grow up, I want to be a well-rounded person. How's that? Yeah. And she goes, out of here. Yeah. <laughs> Get out of my office and come back when you have a real answer. I was like, yeah. you don't even know. You're, this is so above your pay grade that like you don't even see what I'm saying. You know? Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. Finally, I think people are starting to look at that whole college experience. Totally, totally, what totally. What are we doing? You should, you should explore everything in college. Yeah. I think after yeah. college, you should be required to go overseas for three months and just you're a hundred percent travel. I say, that's, that's, yeah, exactly. yep. that's where yep. you grow. That's where you figure it out. Not this whatever. Figure it out. You know, day one of college and then whatever. You moved to LA. And so after advertising, your advertising career in Chicago as a copywriter, well, first of all, what brands did you work on as a copywriter? Oh my God, I got the best stories. So I ended up starting at a like small agency, like Mad Men-esque kind of thing that then ended up getting bought by a bigger agency that then it was called Draft, bought, bought Lee Hill. And then Draft bought Foot Cone and Belding to become the biggest agency in the world at the time. And I don't even know if it's the same. So I started off at this creative, like energy kind of thing. Like this could be awesome. It was what I said. It was frustrating. But then we got bigger and I'm like, this is starting to suck. And then we became, and I was out when we were just kind of acquiring Foot Cone. And I was like, this is not for me, but it just went crazy. But the funniest part of that story is I was working in what I called vice advertising or vice marketing. Because when I first started, it was marketing and I worked for Marlboro and Jack Daniels. And I'm trying to think there was another brand, a beer company. And I was like, old style. (laughs) Yeah, literally peddling cigarettes and, and just like, oh, you know, doing all this stuff. So then I made the leap to. The agency, I, I mentioned it earlier, Lee Hill, and ended up working on M&M Mars. And I'm like, this is cool. But then really close in, I was like, this is worse than cigarettes. At least you're you're marketing or advertising it to people that have a conscious choice and they're old enough, you know, for most of But the whole thing of M&M Mars was the nag effect. Put something on the bag, do a collaboration with this cartoon character, this movie, so that the kid goes, Mom, 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 I need that. I want that. And I'm like, this is worse than than Vice Vice Advertising. So yeah, the biggest brands, I just mentioned them all. But but yeah, I went from I went from Vice to Candy. And then I worked for Kellogg's and other ones for a little bit. You went from Vice to Vicer. So you moved to LA. You leave it all behind, like a, a true seeker, like a true renegade, like a true artist. You're going to come to L.A. and you're going to write the killer movie or show. 
Okay, what? Before we get to LA, I do have one story of the moment that I, and I don't know if I ever talked about this as Wordsmith. I know I wrote about it, but so the day I realized I was done with advertising, this is 100% a true story. There's so many meetings after meetings after meetings. Somebody called a meeting and I'm in the meeting room. The meeting was how to have more effective meetings. The bosses thought that we were having meetings that could have been 15 minutes or a half an hour, but they were an hour long. So they just wanted more productivity in the day. They called a meeting, how to have more effective meetings. I sat there for 15 minutes waiting for those two bosses. And I'm like, the irony, I was like, I'm done. I literally am done. And I knew I was just gone that that day. I mean, it doesn't get more ironic than that. So it was a, just a funny moment in my life. But then, yes. It was, it was an epiphany. It was yeah. an epiphany. You had a vision of these two assholes. I started traveling in the left direction, which turned out to be the right direction. And that's how I wound up in L.A. I love it. I love it. So did you fly or drive cross-country? I drove and I, I took three weeks. I had a dog at the time, a lab, and we drove across the country for three weeks, d- dipped all the way down as far as like, I know I went to New Orleans and Texas and then up and it was just beautiful. It was, I was in no hurry. I stopped to see college friends along the way and just saw places camped for a little bit, hotels for the rest. It was, it was glorious. I was in, no, I was in no rush. I was anxious to get to LA, but I was in no rush to do it. I knew it was, I was going to enjoy taking my time. Well, it was sort of like a cleansing, purging process, right? You're like, you're you're sort of taking your time to let the shackles or the old skin fall away down the birth canal to be reborn, right, in LA. But it was even more than that. I think I just realized this now, but, and this is a very poetic way of saying it, it was the beginning of my enjoy the journey mentality, And it's that so many times you're moving to LA and it's just like, oh, I can get there in two and a half days if I drive, you know, and it's like, fuck that. Do you know the places you're passing? You know what I mean? That you're not stopping to whatever, smell the roses and and eat the food. I said, I'm going to take my time. So it was like three weeks that I was driving across the country knowing, you know, I was, I was moving to LA and very excited, but it was the beginning of that. And I can even bring it more. I mean that if you follow my work, it's such a mantra of mine that if you're chasing your dream, make sure you're enjoying it like if you want to be a singer or a writer or an actor or a dancer you should be enjoying that every single day of striving for it because yes the, you're just yes. like oh this sucks but it, there's a huge payday at the end you're doing it wrong like if you're not enjoying 100%. it along the way it's going to kill you so you have to enjoy the journey and that's the biggest lesson and not that i'll bring it back to this writing i know so many frustrated writers because they haven't sold something or or gotten a got something made and it's like if you're not enjoying that because it's a lot of time in front of the sitting in front of the computer and alone and just if you don't enjoy that process what the fuck are you doing whatever you have to enjoy the journey you have to enjoy every day and then if it resonates with other people, I've wrote about this and, and you can have a career of it. That's the fucking secret to life because it's making you smile on a daily basis and now people are paying for you for it. So it's just it's just amazing if you if you can get to that level. Yeah, the payday has to be the icing on the cake, right? You have like the compensation day to day has to come from the practice and the rehearsal and the iterative experience of making mistakes and learning and growing like that's that's. The rich, good stuff, yeah. right? Yeah, my biggest thing, I want to slap people um, in a good way, but when they say, I want to be a writer, I want to be an artist, I want to be a dancer, you are a writer, you are a dancer, you know what I mean? It's just like, if you're dancing, if you're if you're going to auditions, if you're sitting in front you know, of a computer or a typewriter and, and, and writing, you are a writer. It doesn't start or begin when you, whatever, get the, get the in that sense, it's different. Yeah. If you want to be a doctor, you got to go to school and then be and persevere through that. You know what I mean? And then you're allowed to, you know, do it when you're dreaming, when you're creating your own thing. It's it's like you are, you know what I mean? You're just trying to get people to put what you're just trying to put a spotlight on yourself and say, look how great I am. Yeah. Yeah. Well, by the way, you mentioned school. Did you did you go to college? Did you study or what did, did. What did you? Yeah. What did you study? I love as a writer, like I, I can toy with my whole thing. Like I went to Miami University, which is in mm-hmm. Oxford, Ohio. So yeah, now yeah, when I'm in bars and stuff, I just tell them, oh, I studied in Oxford. 
And I'm not lying. <laughs> it sounds better than Miami. I'm like, oh, I studied in Oxford. <laughs> really? <laughs> it's it's a true statement. It is a true statement. Absolutely. I love it. The art of lying. I love it. Lying. But yeah, I studied back then. It was called mass communication. I studied radio, TV, film, writing, advertising, like the whole gamut. You know what I mean? And yeah, we had to take electives, and there some of them were tough because I'm not good at math and I'm not good at you know science. But I got to you know, my bread and butter, when I got to all those classes of creating and writing and, and doing everything like that, I, I flourished, um, obviously. And and then it was great to, like, I took a bunch of art history classes and stuff like that. So that kind of started kind of creating me, you know, from the ground up. Right on. So you get to LA, you have some friends here, so you're not cold, you know, you're not arriving totally stranger in a strange land. So day one, week one, month one, year one, what were your expectations, goals, and dreams for what you were here for? Like, unpack that for us. Take us back and help us understand how you how you navigated this new terrain and vis-a-vis your vision for yeah. your life in LA. Yeah, I got a lot. I got a lot to say about that. So, first of all, I moved here thinking I was going to hate it. Like, I had a friend, my oldest friend, who who was here. I was visiting one time and he was like, hey, if you want to write, you should you should come to L.A. And I remember thinking, there's no fucking way I'm going to live here. It's sprawling, cold. The people are weird. So when I was driving across the country, I was thinking, "Okay, I'm going to put my head down and get the work done, but I'm not going to enjoy this city. Really early on, like three months in, I remember I was hiking in Runyon Canyon and I stopped and I'm like, this place is awesome, but it was everything. It was inheriting that group of friends. It was, I liked where I was in Hollywood. I liked my place and, and I did have minor successes, you know, that I'll talk about in a second. But for me, it was kind of like, holy shit, something that I thought I was going to tolerate in the city of Los Angeles, I ended up loving. Like I've been here long enough that it's home and and I love that because it completely surprised me. Those are the best love stories. And then really, like I said, really early on, I was I was doing anything I could. If you've listened to me talk in this podcast, what you get is I love writing in a lot of different mediums. So when I got here, I was writing screenplays. I was writing short films. I was interviewing bands for articles. I was I did a little work in documentary TV. I was doing anything I could to just kind of not only pay the bills, but but then also get my writing out there. And really early on, I wrote a short film that and entered it into a contest and I won the contest and the winning the contest was I got to make my movie, which was incredible. So I don't know what it was, like six months or nine months in, I was making this short film movie. And I had some of my friends going, who the fuck are you? Like, I've been here for two years and you're making a movie or five years and stuff. So so it was good in that affirmation of like, I've always believed in my writing, but I did have those minor successes or even getting the gigs to interview bands and, and the gigs to work in documentary TV affirmed, oh, people like my writing. And that allowed me, even working in documentary TV, that sounds like, oh, you're not chasing your dream. But I was writing, I was flexing that muscle, and I was getting paid for it. And I would work on shows that, whatever, I wrote for three months, and then the season was in the can, and I I had a nest egg and time. So what would I do? I would spend that time writing a screenplay, and then getting it out there, talking to people and getting it in their hands. That's actually how I also wrote the book. I had just finished a show in documentary TV and I'm not the type of person, trust me, I enjoy myself. I love quitting at five and happy hour and being, you know, just around people. But when I got done with this show and I was on hiatus, I was like, okay, what am I going to write? Like I wanted to put my head down and create something. I had an idea for a story that I didn't want to write as a screenplay. So I wrote it as a book. And that ended up getting published, and it's my firstborn. I'm still proud of it. It was re-released a couple years ago under the authorship of Wordsmith, which was great because nobody, when it came out originally, nobody knew who Phil Brody was. Like it won some awards, and it it got great reviews, but it didn't sell a lot of copies. But when I re-released it under Wordsmith, I had this audience, and a whole new audience read it and continues to read it, and that's great. Two things came of that, if I could finish just talking about the whole nature of Hollywood, that's my book, is that's how Wordsmith was born. 
because I was doing what I loved, but because I immersed myself in the writing of this book, which was a amazing time in my life, but it was obviously a huge task. I was sitting for six to eight to 10 hours a day writing, doing what I loved. But when it was done and, and I was trying to get it published, I realized, holy shit, I need an active hobby. Like I'm, I'm a smart guy. Like I'm sitting for this long of day and, and some days were even longer. Like I would edit at night and stuff. I'm like, I need something that gets me out of the chair and, and out and about. But that was a conundrum because if I, if I did something like photography, I know three months later I would resent it because I wasn't writing. So that was the conundrum. And that's how I one day said, maybe I'll start to do street art. And, and I got the idea for Wordsmith. That's a whole story in itself. But I just started doing the, the street art for myself. And it energized me. It got me out of the seat. I would go out at 4 o'clock in the morning, do a couple pieces, come back completely like jazzed adrenaline and write. And it just worked. But then those words that I was painting on walls started taking off and resonating with people. And again, it was when Instagram was just blossoming and, you know, the rest is history. Wordsmith just became a thing. And then I realized I could do it full time. And that's how I'm here today, which is amazing. And it's, it's 10 year anniversaries coming up in November. So it's been an incredible ride the last 10 years. Was there a moment that you recall where you realized that your work as Wordsmith was catching fire in a real way? It was like, oh, wow, this is when it hockey sticked. Yeah, I mean, there was a couple things. I mean, just the thrill of being people were taking pictures and posting them on their Instagram and tagging me. That was a thrill in the beginning. There were a couple celebrities that found the pieces, and that was thrilling. The rise in in followers, you know what I mean? Like uh, I remember when I hit 10K, and that was like, holy shit. A lot of other artists were like, oh, my God, you hit 10K. So it's like there were those little things. But I think more than anything, it was the start when people said, do you do commissions? Which is a pretty standard thing for an artist. However, for me as a street artist that started it for fun as a hobby, it was thrilling for me because I was like, they liked the words enough that they wanted them in their life, that they wanted them in their home. And that's the moment I kind of was like, oh, wow, there might be something here. Again, I always believed in my writing, but when you're a street artist, you're putting art out for the people, hoping, and I was hoping to inspire them and motivate them. But then when people said, I'd like this, you know, on canvas or wood or glass or whatever it may be, I was, I was kind of taken aback and I'm like, holy shit, again, never expected to make a dime, but then realized there might be something here. So all of those things, but really the commissions were the were the biggest thing for for taking it not more serious because I definitely took it serious from the get go in in the enjoyment hobby factor, but from the career or art aspect. And then when people started asking for commissions, for me for a while it was all about the words. I got the stencil and and spray paint, but it made me want to be a better artist. So I learned how to make better stencils and use better paint and different techniques. And you continue to do that. I mean, every artist in, in any capacity continues to evolve. And that was very cool. But but in the beginning, I was using shitty, you know, 99 cent paint and, and spraying the temporary really quickly to get the page up there and hoping I didn't get caught. And, and around that same time of all that happening is when I realized, don't go out at four o'clock in the morning do it at noon on whatever street you're on and just don't look over your shoulder. Act like you're supposed to be there and hide in plain sight kind of thing. And that's a confidence thing. So I think it was Glenn Chucklos that said, inspiration is for amateurs. And I remember reading that one of my favorite writers, Tom Robbins, talking about his process, how you know he goes nine to five, work, 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 you know, back in the wood shop, just pounding away. And most of it's crap, and then eventually you get to the good stuff. So it's a job, right? Being an artist is a job. It's a nine-to-five thing. You have to be faithful in your practice, faithful in your process. Take us through your practice and your process. How do you approach your work specifically? Well, if we're talking specifically about street art, I still treat it, you know what I mean? Even though I'm having fun, even though I'm passionate about it, even though it's a fun activity, I do it every day. I, in some capacity, I'm either... I'm either writing or cutting stencils or getting paint on my hands. 
and doing it every day. And I think that's important. You know what I mean? You you have to. Like I've wrote, if it's what you want to do for a living, wake up every day and get to work in that capacity. So every day is different for me, if that's what you're asking, but I do create every day. I, I wrote that also, create every day and making excuses does not count. Because if you're sitting there saying, maybe tomorrow I'll do this, that's telling you something. That's the whole thing of enjoy the journey and do what makes you happy every day. And this makes me happy. If you're talking specifically how I come up with things and pieces, I'm always writing. As a writer, I'm inspired by a lot of things. Something in this conversation I might remember and I'm like, oh, that was a unique way of stating that. And that might turn into a little seed that grows into an idea that turns into a sentence that then is painted on a wall at some juncture. I have muses in my life. I'm fascinated by the muse. So inspiration comes from them. I don't know. As a writer, I'm kind of always analyzing and overanalyzing in a neurotic way my life and things that happen. So even talking about those times in advertising can turn into stories or an inkling of what we're talking about. Like sometimes it's good to quit your job, you know what I mean? And reliving that. And it's funny because I started, when I started wordsmithing, I've said this, I started wanting to say things to people in Los Angeles that I wish they would have said to me when I first moved here. Then I quickly realized it's not just Los Angeles. You said it before. It's the entire world. It's it's people. People think this way. But now I'm realizing even I continue to say things to myself when I write them or paint them that I wish like that. Quit your job. Sometimes it's good to quit your job. I wish I would have known that earlier in life. You know what I mean? And I'm happy where I am. Like, I think I needed to be in advertising to maybe be as good of a wordsmith as I am because it taught me less is more. It taught me to boil down the idea into the fewest, most powerful words. So would I be the same writer or the same street artist if I didn't work in advertising? But you know what I'm saying? Like I'm constantly even writing for myself and teaching myself that stuff that I that I learned years ago in that respect. So I don't know if I answered your question, but you absolutely well, you absolutely did. And I appreciate the focus on street art because I, I also want to understand your approach to writing when you have a book that you're developing. You know, are you dedicating certain hours of the day to that book? What about your next screenplay? By the way, tell us about the next book and screenplay. What what else are you working on besides your street art? So funny you mentioned that. So one thing I wanted to say about the Holden Age of Hollywood is when it was released as Wordsmith and this whole audience, you know, kind of embraced it or it's reading it, it also got Hollywood to kind of knock on the door again. So you asked about the strike earlier. Like I've done work for the strike and supporting the strikers, but I have a little foot in that world. Like I, I have producers and people talking to me about that property, about the book and nothing is concrete and it continues to be frustrating just like when I was writing screenplays, but I love having these conversations with people. And now I have more freedom where I'm not like, I need to sell this thing or how am I going to pay my rent? I have a, a thing that's paying my rent and now I can walk into these meetings talking about my book in a more confident manner. And this is also the secret to a lot of things in life. It's it's like when you're interviewing, and this is a cliche, but you should be interviewing them as much as they're interviewing you. And yes. you know what I mean? Like when you're looking for a job, like I, 100%. You, I give that advice to people. Don't just look for another job. Yes, you have to pay your bills, but you left your job or you're in this situation looking for a better situation, looking for a better job. So interview them. What I'm getting at is now I walk into these executive studios or, or just, you know, in, in studios and I'm interviewing them. I want the property to be in the best hands and I'm not, of course I want to sell it and that'll be a feather in my hat and I'll be happy. But I'm not going to do anything stupid. I want to get it into the hands of somebody that's as passionate about it as I am. You know what I mean? And you need to find that one champion, you know, whether that's a person or a studio or whatnot. But I continue to do that. You asked about my next book. What I was what I'm getting at with that, I, I didn't ignore your question, is now that I am have a little foot in this world, I'm energized and I'm realizing how much I miss long form writing. This is actually going to answer your previous question at the same time. 
I wrote Holden, if I didn't start doing street art or if Wordsmith wasn't successful, I'd still be doing it. Maybe not to the level that I do it and get to travel the world and, and all that, but I'd still be doing it. However, I probably would have written my second or third book by now, you know what I mean? Because that was the career path I thought I was going down. What I'm getting at is I had the idea for my second book. 10 years ago, or at least seven years ago, and I continue to percolate it in my mind. I write down notes every now and then, and I continue to think about it, scenes, characters, and the good news is, after this amount of time, it still floats. The idea has merit, you know what I mean? And I'm excited to write it. The problem is, it's like I need to find that balance in time where Wordsmith keeps me busy, and if you followed my conversation about Holden when I was writing it, I did that all day, every day. I can't do that. So I need to find a new routine. And I'm thinking about it and even pondering that. Like, I think it's going to be first thing in the morning or even getting up an hour earlier and just no phones, no nothing, just write for an hour or two or whatever it may be. And then go to work, you know what I mean, kind of thing. But I'll find a way to do it, and I'm excited to write this next story. I kind of thought it's very different from The Holden Age of Hollywood, which is set in Los Angeles and is about the movie industry, but it kind of turns the industry upside down. It's not your typical Hollywood story, and that's why I was so excited to write it, and that's why I think people enjoy reading it. My second book is set in Los Angeles, but that's the only comparison. Like it's a, another work of fiction, but it kind of is a thriller. But what I'm getting at is my first book is kind of like a mystery and a thriller and unexpected love story and this noir type feel to it. You think that, oh, that's super unique. As I start to dissect and look at my second book, which right now is called The Dog Wonder, it is a thriller with a mystery with a little noir and an unexpected love story like it's not the same book by any means but that's what I do I, I merge these genres and kind of push them together and do this intriguing type story so in that respect that's what I do as a writer and and I'm excited to dive down that rabbit hole and find the time to write another novel so speaking of finding the time you know in graffiti art parlance getting up fast becomes an addiction how addicted are you to street art and how does that impact your ability to focus on your next book or your screenplay? I mean, don't you want to be out getting up? Absolutely. And that's the thing. Like, I know I can't, I know I can't take, you know, all day, every day to write this book because street art is who I am. You know what I mean? That's not changing or going away. I want to find a balance where I can do both at the same time and not ignore or have wordsmith suffer at all because I am enjoying myself immensely. And I love that every day is different. And if you ask me how much I love street art, the best way I can explain that is I get asked every now and then, do you still do renegade work? Do you still do you know stuff on your own? Because people think I've had success and, and I do get opportunities. People give me walls. People pay me to paint their walls. People ask me to do murals. I work with companies and, and commissions and everything. So in that sense, it's great that that happens. I don't know what I'm getting at there. What I'm saying is 50% of my work is still renegade. Like I've told this story a lot. I was sent to Auckland, New Zealand a couple years ago to do 10 pieces inside of a rugby stadium, the All Blacks, you know, rugby stadium, one of the biggest stadiums in the world. While I was there for the week, I did 10 pieces in the streets because I was walking around at night and I'm like, oh, I love that wall. I'm going to come back tomorrow morning and put a piece there. So it'll always be 50%. You know what I mean? And that's how much I love street art is that that I still go out there and I have two pieces in my car, right? Actually, more than two pieces, but I have two new pieces in my car and a lot of stencils that, that if I want to drop a sidewalk stencil or I see a wall that's great, I can just pull off and make that happen. And, and I've done that. I've been going to dinners and I'm always on time, if not early. I go to dinners and, you know, the dinner's at seven, but I'm in the area at like 6.30. I'm like, oh shit, I can get a piece up. And I get to the <laughs> hands and people look at me like, really? And I'm like, well, this is who I am. So it's like, I'm going to take advantage of it whenever I can in a Batman type of way. <laughs> a tiger can't change its stripes, my friend. Wordsmith, you are a force of nature, man. I am so grateful that you took time to sit down and chop it up with me, man. I mean, I hope I can call you my friend. This is a joy. I'm so grateful. I know our listeners are just loving this. 
and we could go on. And I want you to come back, but I also want to be respectful of your time. But before we go, tell our listeners where they can find you online. It's easy to find me online. So I'm Wordsmith with no vowels. So it's W-R-D-S-M-T-H. If you put that in Instagram, there I am. If you put that in Twitter, is it called Twitter still? X. <laughs> Wordsmith.com, no vowels, W-R-D-S-M-T-H.com. There I am. I have a, I have a website and it has pictures of my work in the streets. It has my book for sale, prints and all that jazz, but, but I'm easy to find. And if you Google Wordsmith, yes, I come up. That's pretty awesome to say, you know what I mean? That it's not difficult to find me. That's it. Well, you heard it here, people. And you go check out Wordsmith today and uh, drop what you're doing. Run to your computers. Wordsmith, man, thanks so much, man. This has been such a joy. We got to go get beers. Let's go get drunk. Totally. And I'll end, I'll end my, my thing saying, all my friends call me Brody. So stop calling me Wordsmith. You need to call me Brody. Thank you. So we're friends, Brody. Right on, brother. Everybody I love it. That, well, that's podcast. a gift. That's a gift. Everybody listening to this podcast, we're now friends. So if you see me in the street, just go, hey, Brody. <laughs> or yeah, Brody. right on. Well, it's funny because I've had I've had guests on the show that absolutely do not want me to use a real name because they have warrants. <laughs> yeah, I got over that a while ago. Like I believe in what I'm doing yeah. too much to hide my face or worry about that. It's like Yeah. Exactly. Well, you're putting out yeah, you're you're putting out positive energy, man, and good vibes and you know, you want, you know, you want to be standing next to that. You know, you want to be associated with that in a, in a real way and people need to know who you are because you're you're one of the good guys, and we're so grateful for you, my friend. Thanks for coming on, Brody. It was great to be here. Great conversation. Thanks for listening to the Not Real Art Podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes. Not Real Art is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles. Our theme music was created by Ricky Peugeot and Desi Deloro from the band Parlor Social. Not Real Art is created by We Edit Podcast and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Not Real Art. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating creative culture and the artists who make it.